Tonight, what creates a sense of meaning in life? What creates feelings of a meaningful life? What creates significant experiences that deep fulfillment or a sense that our life is mattering and meaning something beyond mere survival? Uh, when people talk about what is a meaningful life, my first proposal is that we're not referring to meaning in the sense of a sign. For instance, a green light means go, a red light means uh, stop, or yellow light means proceed with caution. The word yes means I agree, the word no means I disagree. In those cases, all of those signs I just meant mentioned are hollow and empty. They're just, word, the word yes is just uh, a, uh, a sound that comes out of my mouth, but you interpret that sign as meaning, I agree. But we don't want our life to be as simple, and all of our experiences to simply be a lifeless sign that points to something outside of itself. At least I don't want my, all of my life to simply be a bunch of words <laughs> that amass to some kind of meaning outside of, uh, uh, that essentially point to something else. So I don't believe that we're using the normal uh, understanding of the word meaning when we talk about what creates a meaning in life or meaningful life. It's not that we view our life as some kind of empty sign that points to some message outside of itself. I'd also propose um, that when we talk about what creates a sense of meaning, we're, we're talking about something beyond the mere satisfaction of our biological urges, which are to keep going uh, for some people, to procreate, to uh, survive, to, uh, and to re accumulate resources. I don't think that anybody looks back on points in their life and find that it was particularly meaningful simply because they got out of bed, went to work, came home, <laughs> ate their meals, uh, you know, and simply uh, proceeded to keep themselves alive. So for the sake of tonight's talk, I'm going to assume that while our biological impulses to survive are important, they don't create meaning or a sense of significance simply because we survive. If uh, you disagree, I'd like to hear about that. Um, I'd like to also propose that there's things in life that are purposeful, that give us a sense of purpose and even create feelings of happiness, but are not in what I would call meaningful. I'm going to now make a distinction between a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning in one's life. So what do I consider to be purposeful? Well, for me, purpose is to be part of a group endeavor, a community to do work that benefits others, or for instance, to raise children, or to connect with others in a way that brings them a sense of happiness that helps regulate their emotions and so forth. So I think that that creates a sense of purpose. And furthermore, that that creates a sense of well-being. It's been shown that when we bond with others in a way that is beneficial to them and to ourselves, that it activates core regions of the brain, especially the anterior cingulate cortex and the dorsal medial structures that 
create feelings of well-being. When you connect with another human being, it raises your levels of endorphin and it raises your level of serotonin. So you feel less discomfort and you actually feel protection against mood plummets. So that for me is very purposeful. We connect with others in a way that makes them feel better, makes us feel better. It actually is good for our nervous system. It actually takes us out of uh, mobilized sympathetic nervous back into uh, the very fundamentally healthy state of the ventral parasympathetic or rest and digest state. But, and here's an important but, when people reflect on experiences that created a sense of meaning, uh, experiences that they can remember with a great degree of um, sense of deeper fulfillment, a sense of emotional resonance, a sense of uh, like vividness that we can recall years later. Those experiences light up entirely different regions of the brain than bonding experiences do. While bonding activates the areas of the brain that produce endorphins and produce, um, uh, sorry, serotonin, uh, meaningful experiences light up both sides of your brain, especially regions in the parietal and the temporal lobe that are not lit up through simply doing things of benefit for others. I shouldn't say simply, doing things of benefit for others is vastly important for our emotional health but it doesn't create the sense of meaning, the sense that my life has some kind of depth and resonance and a sense of emotional growth. Um, so the, what these parts of the brain that light up also trigger the release of dopamine. What is dopamine? Dopamine is the reward neurotransmitter. It also activates acetylcholine and many other neuropeptides and neurotransmitters. So <coughs> depth significant experiences are actually resonant in very different ways than purposeful connecting and bonding experiences. One works primarily in the right hemisphere, the other is bilateral including the left. And so my deep view is that from any self-actualization perspective, using the term by Maslow, we need both to feel our lives are uh, completely fulfilling. We need times where we bond with others in a community or that we do something that's a benefit to a tribe because we are a tribal species. But we also need to have experiences that are deeply create a sense of uh, self-actualization and a sense of I'm experiencing something that is important something that is significant. Um, I'm For your benefit, for the low cost of absolutely nothing, I have put together what, uh, just throw to, thrown together a definition of what I think significant experiences are, and this can be totally wrong. I just did it the day before yesterday. So it's not like I put a huge amount of thought, but for me, significant experiences are events that feel extraordinary we remember them 
they're immersive, which means we feel completely uh, connected with the experience. They're inspiring, and they have a sense of oneness to them, where we stop feeling distant and vulnerable from the world, and we start feeling this deep sense of connection with an experience. So they're immersive, engaging, inspiring. They are uh, extraordinary. Now, if you disagree, that's fine. This could totally be wrong, but I'm just going to be using this as a working definition for what I think meaningful experiences are. Furthermore, I find that they can produce open-ended insights, not very specific messages, but they can create these insights into what is really resonant and what creates a sense of value for us, what creates a sense of beauty. They transcend the mundane concerns of just daily life, surviving, paying rent, accumulating resources, resolving resource uh, issues. And for me, just as much as purposeful activities that create a sense of well-being because we're helping others, we need to have these deep, significant experiences of self-actualization and what used to be called ego transcendence, where our sense of being in a small body that's vulnerable and separate from others is somehow transcended for this greater sense of being at one with the sensations and experiences around us. So are you following that? Is that, is that landing in some way, I hope, for some people? Okay. So um, I've found in my life that significant experiences can happen during events that I might not have thought would, at the beginning, would be at all significant. In fact, they can be out of the blue. There was um, a very vivid, and I still can recall it with absolute clarity, even though it happened more than four years ago. Um, I was visiting a friend in hospice. I've done um, a fair degree of hospice work. I, I uh, teach at a hospice training. Uh, I'm a visiting teacher at a hospice training facility in New York uh, Zen Center. And um, so I was visiting somebody who was uh, uh, a good friend who was also dying of uh, liver cancer. And um, when I left, I stood outside in front of my bike near Prospect Park, and I suddenly had this deep sense of um, no longer wanting to get anywhere or do anything. I was deeply ingrained in the sensations of just standing the the feeling of the aromas around me. There was this complete sense that nothing in my life was missing. I wasn't missing anything. I had the most precious gift that was imaginable, that I was alive, that I could simply stand and do whatever I want. And I had, it was that, that connecting with the friend that then made this what would have been a very mundane experience suddenly become very vivid. And to this day, I can remember the time of day, I can see where I was standing, and I had this uh, transcendent moment that realized that this desire to constantly create more, to accomplish in life, to get things done was completely beside the point. 
of significance and meaning, that there was something far more deep, which was simply to land fully in any given moment and to fully immerse oneself and connect with just uh, almost this, I know that sounds corny, but this magnificent miracle of simply breathing and being alive. And that for me was a significant moment that I carry with me and it's inspiring whenever I start to feel this sense of getting caught up in like all the, the things I have to do and the pressures of, of, you know, money or anything else. I can remember that, that deep feeling of significance and meaning at that moment and it inspires me to let go and return to my spiritual practice. Meaningful moments were immersed in an event endlessly unfolding. And, but we don't even really care about what the ultimate result is. We're simply in that experience. We're not trying to get anywhere. People who work in the arts, you know, who, uh, who paint or act or who play music, they don't perform music to get to the end of the song. It's not like an empty experience to get to an end. They do it because they love the actual experience of playing an instrument. People are singing. People who love acting don't act because they just want to find out what happens at the end of the play. <laughs> I mean, they, want to, they do it because the actual event is so immersive. It becomes this fulfilling moment where the entire point of being alive becomes vividly felt and experienced. There's no destination. It's just the experience in and of itself that becomes so immersive. When I listen to, I mean, and these are just people that at uh, times I listen to for this great sense of, of immersion and return to a sense of significance. When I listen to Coltrane, when I listen to Nina Simone, to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, and to so many other brilliant uh, musicians, there's not this desire to get to the end of the piece or to have it point to something or for it to impart something in the future that I can use. It's simply the immersion in the event that creates a sense of significance and meaning. And I can still recall vividly the first time I heard Steve Wright's music for 18 musicians. It's just a piece, but for me, it's a piece that was transcendent and continues to add inspiration and significance to my life. In meaningful, significant experiences, the ongoing parade of inner chatter quiets. Time passes in a different way. And there's very often no even sense to it. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote by one of uh, a very inspiring figure for me when I was a kid, uh, getting into Buddhism in the 1970s. Um, my dad had all these Buddhist books because he was a practitioner, but he, that he never read, so I read it. And uh, there was uh, uh, also uh, Alan Watts, who was really big. He was, I don't know if you know who he is, but great. Uh, sort of uh, inspiring Buddhist teacher in the 60s, and he said, why do we love nonsense? 
Why do we love Lewis Carroll with his twas brillig and the slithy toes, the gar and gimbal in the way? Why is it we love songs filled with nonsensical babbling choruses? It's the participation in glorious nonsense that is the heart of the world that's not going anywhere. So significant experiences where we become immersed don't necessarily have any value or deep sense beyond themselves, but they're situations or events where we become so fully immersed, so involved, so caught up that our sense of uniqueness falls away and there's this sense of oneness that we experience. So briefly, I'm gonna talk about this from another perspective and hopefully it'll help clarify. When all of us are born, we experience a state known as jointedness or jointness. It's a symbiotic state where as babies, we, when we were first held by a mother or father, there was this sense that there's no distinct me from the person holding me. The baby after birth feels this sense of connection with the person that cares for it. They don't feel like something different. They feel this sense of oneness and they, there's no sense of what's inside or outside. There's no sense of self and other. There's just this sense of continuum and this being part of everything. Winnicott, one of my heroes, a great developmental psychologist, called this a grandiose state where all of our needs are met and anticipated, where there's this feeling of unlimited security and safety where there's no sense that there are other people, there's just this sense of being one with every sensation. Now, of course, we can't live forever in this ideal, grandiose construction. So the job of the parent is to do what's called optimally frustrating us. <laughs> I kind of like that phrase, optimally frustrating. Turned by Kohut, uh, a famous psychologist. It means that very gradually over time, our needs are, there's more and more space between our needs and when they're gonna be met. And there's more times when we're not being held or being, you know, uh, essentially uh, supported. And there's more times when we experience ourselves disconnected from the mother or from the father. Over time, this, Transition is smoothed by the child has a transitional object, which is a representation of the mother that the child carries around. The child feels that sense of connection with the transitional object, like a toy or a piece of fabric. But so it helps feel secure, but also introduces the child to the idea that it's gonna spend a lot of its life alone and not with the mother. Winnicott said, though, the most important meaningful event of childhood happens with what's called the transitional space, which is where the child learns to play, learns to be creative, learns to immerse itself with toys. And when we are playing, when we are engaged, Winnicott said three things happen at once. Our sense of internal, what's happening in me, our sense of external, what's happening with other people, and our sense of the ability to turn it into a story that's immersive, all intersect. And for the first time, 
create the meaningful, significant experience for the child. Meaning is not simply being completely at one, but it's a greater sense of oneness where we can make sense of what our life is and what is important to us. It's not an escape, but it's an experience where the sense of being separate from everything begins to devolve a little bit and we can return somewhat to that sense of connection with the world around us. So if these, any of these ideas are true about what creates significance and meaning, how do we find these experiences? Well, of course, one is in spiritual practice. When people meditate, the exact same regions of the brain that have been associated with deep spiritual events light up. Again, the temporal parietal lobe, the dorsolateral, the, the release of dopamine and so forth. The left hemisphere becomes just as dominant and it doesn't, it, depression is alleviated. Ritual behaviors with vivid sensations. Some people have deep significant experiences with breath work, sound baths, movement classes like five rhythms and so forth. Some people find it in yoga and in their personal rituals. Some people experience it with aromatherapy. Go figure, it doesn't do anything for me, but I, I know that that's true. Therapies where we can uncover insights and we can be creative can help us have these significant experiences. And most importantly, being creative and self-actualizing, being curious about an experience or exploring playfully some creative endeavor. Winnicott said that no one is ever free from the strain of relating their inner and outer realities. And this relief is provided by curiosity, play, investigation. So that, what for me, is what creates significance and meaning in life. The Buddha said if we fail to immerse ourselves in non-purposeful but deepening experiences, it creates what he called viraya, which is a sense of disillusionment with life and, and depression. That if we want to have a meaningful life, he said we have to practice what is called vikaya, Wikaya is the curious investigation of every experience that opens up to us with the possibility of immersing ourselves, stepping outside of that state of having to get anywhere, accomplish, do things, and just become fully engaged and interested in what you're experiencing. Whether that's for you in spiritual practice or in music or art, or in any other ritual behavior. Finally, in Hinduism, it's taught that the divine Brahman, which is kind of their god, transformed himself in or herself into the world via spontaneous act of play. And the tragedy is that the Brahman, they believe, is split into all of us, but we forget it's all a play. And we take it seriously, and we believe that we're separate rather than all part of this divine dance that we're supposed to enjoy. Watts, I think, said it best. The meaning of life is to just be alive. <laughs> I love that quote. 
The meaning of life is just to be alive. It's so plain and so obvious and so simple, and yet everybody rushes around in a great panic as if it were necessary to achieve something beyond just that. We don't have to prove anything. We just have to connect with our life. Thank you for listening. I hope any of those thoughts were worth listening to. If not, maybe the meditation will do the trick. So let's do a little bit of practice together, and then we'll have time for some questions, and then we'll all get out of here. So we're going to try to have a meaningful experience, shall we? So let's first, to have a meaningful experience, we need to be both awake and comfortable. If you're not comfortable, you'll be distracted by the discomfort in your body, and you won't be able to connect with the vast beauty that's all around you, surrounding you, the, the sensations of simply being. So, uh, but at the same time, if you're not awake, you're not going to really have a significant experience either. So alertness and awakeness, all we need to do is gently lift our chin just a little bit enough, just put a little energy right there so that you don't slouch. When people slouch, they generally begin to check out. So that little bit of energy that just goes to keeping your head up, uh, that's all we need. That's all the effort we're going to put in, and then the rest is going to be about creating ease. So, um, we'll take our normal breaths just to start the process of restoring our nervous system back as much as possible and to homeostasis, which means just a good balance. So full in-breath, and while you do so, if you like, squinch the muscles in your face, furrow the brow, clench the jaw, pinch the nose, just all we're doing is activating the muscles, and then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, just release the muscles in the face. And why we're doing this is when you clench muscles and release, like people very often in yoga do in Savasana, it actually allows the muscles to use less oxygen and less action potential. So the muscles relax more when you clench them and release them than if you simply don't do anything. So another full inhalation, and if you like, lift the shoulders up, 
like you're trying to reach above your head with them and then rotate them back, opening up the chest. And then as you breathe out, just dropping the shoulders. That's good. And why we're doing this is we want to engage the vagal nerve, which when it's engaged can actually put a break on essentially lowers your heart rate, your blood pressure, allows you to relax, and also your vagal nerve sends a message up to the amygdala that overrides sort of jumpy, stressful state, allows you to relax. And then for our third breath, imagine you're breathing into your belly, so your belly expands and floats. It really balloons, and as you breathe out, long exhalation and just relax, soft belly. So abdominal breathing is also associated with parasympathetic, relax, digest. When people breathe into their chest, they're trying to bring in more oxygen. It activates the mobilization state, which is the very foundation of fight flight. When you breathe into your belly, it's associated with relaxed states. Long exhalations secrete acetylcholine, which relaxes and engages the vagal nerve. Strong inhalations release adrenaline and norepinephrine, which wakes you up, but can also make you more anxious. So you can steer your meditation, much like rowing in a kayak. The more you focus on your inhalation, the more you'll add energy, alertness, the more you extend, focus your attention on relaxing the exhalations, the more you will find the mind quieting. So for a while, we'll just sit with the sensations of breathing and the sounds that surround us. Sounds allow the mind to remain spacious. It's a good practice just to allow any sound in without adding any 
story about the sound. And trying to ride the sensations of the breath like if you were in a kayak, you'd ride the ebb and flow of a body of water that your boat was resting upon. The inhalation would be like the raising of the tide. The exhalation would be like the wave or the The raising would go out and you feel the tide lowering. So just riding those sensations, resting upon an area where you can feel yourself breathing in and out. trying to let go of any idea that there's something more important than this moment in your life, some place you need to get to, some event in the past that is more interesting. The goal is to really embrace the sensations that comprise the present without adding anything to it or as little to it as possible my thoughts and memories, if they arise, that's okay. Just each time you find yourself lost in a memory or a plan or a concern about something else, just return to the sounds, return to your body breathing. Just feel really good about Awakening, it's like a little version of enlightenment. Every time we 
awake from a thought and become restored to the real life around us that's not a story but is an actual experience.
So at this point, we're going to drop into a practice called choiceless awareness, where, or open awareness, where you can allow anything that arises in your consciousness to be the focus of your practice. And the key is to be curious, completely involved in investigating without any judgment. One Buddhist monk I studied with called it being a like a astronaut from Mars who's landed in a human body. Everything that arises is new. You've never had it before. So if there's a discomfort or a feeling of heaviness or a nervous energy or a, a feeling of tiredness or whatever you experience, just investigate it like it's never happened before being completely curious, engaged, and if something you investigate no longer becomes interesting, then just return back to the breath, to the sounds. If a thought arises that's persistent, as you observe the thought, Keep awareness on your body and notice how does this thought affect my body? Or how does this memory change my breathing? Part of choiceless awareness is that you don't steer what becomes the predominant experience, but you don't get lost in it. It just becomes important in and of itself simply to observe. To not take anything for granted. Anything you experience can turn into a meaningful, significant event. If you really investigate it, if you really get curious, This moment will never happen again. You'll never be in this exact situation again. All of the factors, all of the feelings. What is happening right now in your experience? That unfolds in a way that observing it can create meaning right now.
try to find what's it's not the thing in itself that's miraculous it's the attention that we give it to it give to it Try to find something in your experience and really observe it as if for the first time and find what's unusual, extraordinary, what you didn't know about breathing or what you didn't know about the feelings in the front of your body or what you didn't know about listening. See if you can return to the mystery of being alive just through your curiosity. This time we're going to very gradually return to the more uh, mundane state of awareness where there's a sense of self and other, where we're aware of other people, where we're once again in that sort of externally fixated, overbalanced, or just aware state. And so my hope is, is you very gradually take your time and open your eyes slowly so that you look at the ground in front of you and when sight returns, that you don't allow yourself to fully become external, that you keep awareness of what's happening internally. It's a strike. That nice balance that Winnicott was talking about where we're no longer feeling this isolated distance Self, but there's also this really firm connection with our internal life. Balanced, mindful awareness, knowing what's going on internally, externally. Not giving, not forgetting our own internal experience. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes.
Thank you for your practice. And uh, I have to cop to the fact that whenever this room gets quiet and I can hear every word of the yoga instructor, you know, moving into warrior one and feeling your legs planted and your arms extended fully and the heart chakra opening up, then I worry, oh my God, can they hear me when I, they get caught? You know, they're lying on the yoga mat in Savasana, can they hear me go, and if you didn't get the love you needed in childhood, you will wind up with anxious attachment or avoidant, and it will be far more of a work in finding secure relationships. Like, oh my God, I came to yoga class not to remind myself of this shit. <laughs> And that guy who sounds like Larry David in the next room is straddling <laughs> on about attachment. Fuck! I gave him this class and forgot. <laughs>